0: WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Every month, we ask a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. Today we'll hear a story by Jean Stafford called Children
0: Are Bored on Sunday, which was published in the magazine in 1948. She wanted them to go together to some hopelessly disreputable bar and to console one another in the most maudlin fashion over a lengthy succession of powerful drinks of whiskey to compare their illnesses, to marry their invalid souls for these few hours of painful communion. Children Are Bored on Sunday was chosen from the archives by Hilton Als,
1: a staff writer and theater critic for The New Yorker. Hi, Hilton. Hi. Hilton, Jean Stafford was a novelist and short story writer who published quite a few pieces in The New Yorker, mostly in the 1950s. Children Are Bored on Sunday was her first story that the magazine published. Mm -hmm. What made you choose this one?
2: I'm always fascinated by how she handles the incredibly hard balance between the internal and external worlds, often in the lives of women, we get one or the other, we don't get a sort of admixture. And what I liked so much about her work always was that the external world always sort of provides a trigger for an emotional, intellectually pretty arduous journey that the character goes on. And
1: the story is about a woman going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And while there, sort of working through her own psychological crisis or, or not really working through it actually but experiencing right, it right is there anything else that you think we should know about the story before we hear it
2: I think that it's important to pay attention to the rhythm of her language which is how she lets us know that she's inside of or outside of the character's mind she's
1: she's always been good at interior monologue yes. The title of this story is actually, I think, the most ironic part of it. Yes, (laughs) yes. Children are bored on Sunday. You expect to be reading a a domestic story about some children playing and getting themselves into trouble. Exactly. Why do you think she used that title?
2: Um, I know that it's a Charles Trenet song, and I think that she probably liked the sound of the song.
0: Les enfants s'ennuient le dimanche.
2: It's a sort of traditional French sound of melancholy and happiness, and was trying to convey it in her very musical. Prose, Which sometimes I find myself wanting to unknot slightly mm-hmm. because it seems she's really trying to prove how written something is.
1: There's also something somewhat Germanic about it. Yes. She has these long clauses and the verb comes at the end. Yes. I mean, yes. She she lived in Heidelberg when yes. she was a young woman and you, see, you feel this sort of influx of German sentence structure. Yes. We'll talk more about the story and Jean Stafford later. Now here's Eliza Foss reading the story
0: Children Are Bored on Sunday. Through the wide doorway, between two of the painting galleries, Emma saw Alfred Eisenberg standing before the three miracles of Zenobius, his lean equine face ashen and sorrowing, his gaunt frame looking undernourished and dressed in a way that showed he was poorer this year than he had been last. Emma herself had been hunting for the Botticelli all afternoon, sidetracked first by a Mantegna she had forgotten and then by a follower of Hieronymus Bosch, and distracted in an English room as she was passing through by the hot invective of two ladies who were lodged, so they bitterly reminded one another, in an outrageous and expensive mare's nest at a hotel on Madison. Emma liked Alfred, and once at a party in some other year, she had flirted with him slightly for seven or eight minutes. It had been spring. And even into that modern apartment, wherever it had been, while the cunning guests on their guard and highly civilized learnedly disputed on aesthetic and political subjects, the feeling of spring had boldly invaded, adding its nameless sentimental sensations to all the others of the buffeted heart. One did not know, and never had, even in the devouring raptures of adolescence, whether this was a feeling of tension or of solution, whether one flew or drowned. In another year, she would have been pleased to run into Alfred here in the Metropolitan on a cold Sunday, when the galleries were thronged with out-of-towners and with people who dutifully did something self-educating on the day of rest. But this year, she was hiding from just such people as Alfred Eisenberg, and she turned quickly to go back the way she had come, past the constables and Rayburns. As she turned, she came face to face with Salvador Dali, whose sudden countenance, with its unlikely mustache and its histrionic eyes familiar from the photographs in public places, momentarily stopped her dead, for she did not immediately recognize him, and, still surprised by seeing Eisenberg, took him also to be someone she knew. She shuddered, and then realized that he was merely famous, and she penetrated the heart of a guided tour, and proceeded safely through the rooms, until she came to the balcony that overlooks the medieval armor. And there she paused watching two youths of high school age examine the joints of an equestrian's shell. She paused because she could not decide what to look at now that she had been denied the Botticelli. She wondered, rather crossly, why Alfred Eisenberg was looking at it, and why indeed he was here at all. She feared that her afternoon, begun in such a burst of courage, would not be what it might have been, for this second's glimpse of him, who had no bearing on her life, Might very well divert her from the pictures, not only because she was reminded of her ignorance of painting by the presence of someone who was, she assumed, versed in it, but because her eyesight was now bound to be impaired by memory and conjecture, by the irrelevant mind portraits of innumerable people who belonged to Eisenberg's milieu. And almost at once, as she had predicted, the air separating her from the schoolboys below was populated with the images of composers, of painters, of writers who pronounce judgments. In their individual argot, on Hindemith, Ernst, Sartre, on Beethoven, Rubens, Baudelaire, on Stalin and Freud and Kierkegaard, on Toynbee, Fraser, Thoreau, Franco, Salazar, Roosevelt, Maimonides, Racine, Wallace, Picasso, Henry Luce, Monsignor Sheen, the Atomic Energy Commission and the movie industry. And she saw herself moving, shaky with apprehensions and martinis, and with the belligerence of a child who feels himself laughed at, through the apartments of Alfred Eisenberg's friends, where the shelves were filled with everyone from Aristophanes to Ring Lardner, where the walls were hung with reproductions of Seurat, Titian, Vermeer, and Clay, and where the record cabinets began with Palestrina and ended with Copeland. These cocktail parties were a modus vivendi in themselves for which a new philosophy, a new ethic, and a new etiquette had had to be devised. They were neither work nor play, and yet they were not at all beside the point, but were, on the contrary, quite indispensable to the spiritual life of the artists who went to them. It was possible for Emma to see these occasions objectively, after these many months of abstention from them, but it was still not possible to understand them, for they were so special a case, and so unlike any parties she had known at home. The gossip was different, for one thing, because it was stylized, creative, integrating the whole of the garroted absent friend, and all its details were precise, and all its conceits were Jamesian, and all its practitioners sorrowfully saw themselves in the role of Pontius Pilate, that hero of the untoward circumstance. It has to be done, though we don't want to do it. "'Tis a pity she's a whore "'when no one writes "'more intelligent verse than she. "'There was, too, "'the matter of the drinks, "'which were much worse "'than those served by anyone else "'and much more plentiful. "'They dispensed with the fripperies "'of olives in martinis "'and cherries in Manhattans, "'God forbid. "'They had no sweet teeth. "'And half the time there was no ice, "'and when there was, "'it was as likely as not "'to be suspect shavings "'got from a bed for shad "'at the corner fish store.' Other species, so one heard, went off to dinner after cocktail parties, certainly no later than half past eight. But no one ever left a party given by an Olympian until ten, at the earliest. And then groups went out together, stalling and squabbling at the door, angrily unable to come to a decision about where to eat, although they seldom ate once they got there, but with the greatest formality imaginable, ordered several rounds of cocktails, as if they had not had a drink in a month of Sundays. But the most surprising thing of all about these parties was that every now and again, in the middle of the urgent general conversation, this cream of the enlightened was horribly curdled, and an argument would end, quite literally, in a bloody nose or a black eye. Emma was always astounded when this happened, and continued to think that these outbursts did not arise out of hatred or jealousy, but out of some quite unaccountable quirk, almost a reflex, almost something physical. She never quite believed her eyes, that is, was never altogether convinced that they were really beating one another up. It seemed rather that this was only a deliberate and perfectly honest demonstration of what might have happened often if they had not so diligently dedicated themselves to their intellects. Although she had seen them do it, she did not and could not believe that city people clipped each other's jaws. For to Emma, urban equaled urbane and ichor ran in these Augustine's veins. As she looked down now from her balcony at the atrocious iron clothes below, it occurred to her that Alfred Eisenberg had been just such a first-generation metropolitan boy as these two who half-knelt in lithe and eager attitudes to study the glittering splints of a knight's skirt. It was a kind of childhood she could not imagine, and from the thought of which she turned away in secret, shameful pity... She had been really stunned when she first came to New York to find that almost no one she met had gluttonously read Dickens as she had beginning at the age of ten, and because she was only twenty when she arrived in the city and unacquainted with the varieties of cultural experience, she had acquired the idea, which she was never able to shake entirely loose, that these New York natives had been deprived of this and many other innocent pleasures because they had lived in apartments and not in two- or three-story houses. In the early years in New York, she had known someone who had not heard a cat purr until he was twenty-five and went to a house party on Fire Island. They had played hide-and-seek dodging behind ash cans instead of lilac bushes and in and out of the entries of apartment houses instead of up alleys densely lined with hollyhocks. But who was she to patronize and pity them? Her own childhood rich as it seemed to her on reflection, had not equipped her to read or to see or to listen as theirs had done. She envied them and despised them at the same time, and at the same time she feared and admired them. As their attitude implicitly accused her, before she beat her retreat, she never looked for meanings, she never saw the literary historical symbolism of the cocktail party, but went on, despite all testimony to the contrary, believing it to be an occasion for getting drunk. She never listened, their manner delicately explained, and when she talked, she was always lamentably off-key. Often and often she had been stared at and had been told, it's not the same thing at all. Emma shuddered, scrutinizing this nature of hers, which they had all scorned, as if it were some harmless but sickening reptile. Noticing how cold the marble railing was under her hands, she felt that her self-blame was surely justified. She came to the Metropolitan Museum not to attend to the masterpieces, but to remember cocktail parties where she had drunk too much and had seen Alfred Eisenberg, and to watch schoolboys, and to make experience out of the accidental contact of the palms of her hands with a cold bit of marble. What was there to do? One thing, anyhow, was clear and that was that today's excursion into the world had been premature. Her solitude must continue for a while, and perhaps it would never end. If the sight of someone so peripheral, so uninvolving as Alfred Eisenberg, could scare her so badly, what would a cocktail party do? She almost fainted at the thought of it. She almost fell headlong, and the boys, abandoning the coat of mail, dizzied her by their progress toward an emblazoned tabard. In so many words, she wasn't fit to be seen. Although she was no longer mutilated, she was still unkempt. Her pretensions needed brushing. Her ambiguities needed to be cleaned. Her evasions would have to be completely overhauled before she could face again the terrifying learning of someone like Alfred Eisenberg, a learning whose components cohered into a central personality that was called intellectual. She imagined that even the boys down there had opinions on everything political and artistic and metaphysical and scientific. And because she remained, in spite of all of her opportunities, as green as grass, she was certain they had got their head start because they had grown up in apartments where there was nothing else to do but educate themselves. This being an intellectual was not the same thing as dilettantism. It was a calling in itself. For example, Emma did not even know whether Eisenberg was a painter, a writer, a composer, a sculptor, or something entirely different. When seeing him with the composers, she had thought he was one of them. When the next time she met him at a studio party, she decided he must be a painter. And when, on subsequent occasions, everything had pointed toward his being a writer, she had relied altogether on circumstantial evidence and not on anything he had said or done. There was no reason to suppose that he had not looked upon her as the same sort of variable, and it made their anonymity to one another complete. Without the testimony of an impartial third person, neither she nor Eisenberg would ever know the other's actual trade. But his specialty did not matter, for his larger designation was that of the intellectual, just as the man who confines his talents to the nose and throat is still a doctor." It was, in the light of this, all the more extraordinary that they had had that lightning-paced flirtation at a party. Extraordinary because Emma could not look upon herself as an intellectual. Her private antonym of this noun was rube, and to her regret, the regret that had caused her finally to disappear from Alfred's group, she was not even a bona fide rube. In her store clothes, so to speak, she was often taken for an intellectual, for she had, poor girl, gone to college— and had never been quite the same since. She would not dare, for instance, go up to Eisenberg now and say that what she most liked in the Botticelli were the human and compassionate eyes of the centurion's horses, which reminded her of the eyes of her own great-uncle Graham, whom she had adored as a child. Nor would she admit that she was delighted with a Crivelli Madonna, because the peaches in the background looked exactly like marzipan, or that Goya's little red boy inspired in her only the pressing desire to go out immediately in search of a plump cat to stroke. While she knew that feelings like these were not really punishable, she had not perfected the art of tossing them off, she was no flirt. She was a bounty jumper in the war between great-uncle Graham's farm and New York City, and liable to court-martial on one side and death on the other. Neither staunchly primitive nor confidently au courant, She rarely knew where she was at, and this was her Achilles' heel. Her identity was always mistaken, and she was thought to be an intellectual who, however, had not made the grade. It was no use now to cry that she was not, that she was a Simon-pure rube. Not a soul would believe her. She knew deeply and with horror that she was thought merely stupid. It was possible to be highly successful as a rube among the Olympians, and she had seen it done. Someone calling himself Nahum Mothersill had done it brilliantly, but she often wondered whether his name had not helped him, and in fact she had sometimes wondered whether that had been his real name. If she had been called, let us say, Hyacinth Derryberry, she believed she might have been able, as Mothersill had been, to ask who Ezra Pound was. This struck her suddenly as a very important point. It was endearing, really, not to know who Pound was, but it was only embarrassing to know who he was, but not to have read the cantos. How different it would have been if education had not meddled with her rustic nature. Her education had never dissuaded her from her convictions, but certainly it had ruined the looks of her mind, painted the poor thing up, until it looked like a mean, hypocritical, promiscuous malcontent, a craven and apologetic fancy woman. Thus she continued secretly to believe, but never to confess, that the apple Eve had eaten tasted exactly like those she had eaten when she was a child visiting on her great-uncle Graham's farm, and that Newton's observation was no news, in spite of all the hue and cry. Half the apples she had eaten had fallen out of the tree, whose branches she had shaken for this very purpose— and the apple experience included both the descent of the fruit and the consumption of it. And Eve and Newton and Emma understood one another perfectly in this particular of reality. Emma started. The Metropolitan boys, who, however bright they were, would-be boys, now caused some steely article of dress to clank, and she instantly quit the balcony as if this unseemly noise would attract the crowd's attention and bring everyone, including Eisenberg, to see what had happened. She scuttered like a quarry through the sightseers until she found an empty seat in front of Rembrandt's famous frump, the noble Slav. It was this kind of thing, this fundamental apathy to most of Rembrandt, that made life in New York such hell for Emma. And there, upon the plum velours, she realized with surprise that Alfred Eisenberg's had been the last familiar face she had seen before she had closed the door of her tomb. In September, it had been her custom to spend several hours of each day walking in a straight line, stopping only for traffic lights and outlaw taxicabs, in the hope that she would be tired enough to sleep at night. At five o'clock, and gradually it became more often four o'clock and then half past three, she would go into a bar where, while she drank, she seemed to be reading the information offered by the sun on where to dine. Actually, she had ceased to dine long since. Every few days, with effort, she inserted thin wafers of food into her repelled mouth, flushing the frightful stuff down with enormous drafts of magical, purifying, fulfilling Applejack, diluted with tepid water from the tap. One weighty day... Under a sky that grimly withheld the rain, as if to punish the whole city, she had started out from 90th Street and had kept going down Madison and was thinking, as she passed the chancery of St. Patrick's, that it must be nearly time and that she needed only to turn east on 50th Street to the New Weston, where the bar was cool and dark to an almost absurd degree. And then she was hailed. She turned quickly, looking in all directions until she saw Eisenberg approaching— removing a gray pellet of gum from his mouth as he came. They were both remarkably shy, and at the time she had thought they were so, because this was the first time they had met since their brief and blameless flirtation. How curious it was that she could scrape off the accretions of the months that had followed, and could remember how she had felt on that spring night, as trembling, as expectant, as altogether young, as if they had sat together underneath a blooming apple tree. But now... Knowing that her own embarrassment had come from something else, she thought that perhaps his had too, and she connected his awkwardness on that September day with a report she had had, embedded in a bulletin on everyone from her sole communicant since her retreat with the Olympian world. This informant had run into Alfred at a party and had said that he was having a very bad time of it with a divorce, with poverty, with a tempest that had carried off his job, and at last with a psychoanalyst whose fees he could not possibly afford. Perhaps the nightmare had been well under way when they had met beside the chancery. Without alcohol and without the company of other people, they had had to be shy, or their suffering would have shown in all its humiliating dishabille. Would it be true still if they should inescapably meet this afternoon in an early Flemish room? Suddenly, on this common level, in this state of social displacement, Emma wished to hunt for Alfred— and urgently tell him that she hoped it had not been as bad for him as it had been for her. But naturally she was not so naive, and she got up and went purposefully to look at two Holbeins. They pleased her, as Holbeins always did. The damage, though, was done, and she did not really see the pictures. Eisenberg's hypothetical suffering, and her own real suffering, blurred the clean lines and muddied the lucid colors. Between herself and the canvases, swam the months of spreading, cancerous distrust, of anger that made her seasick, of grief that shook her like an influenza chill, of the physical afflictions by which the poor, victimized spirit sought vainly to wreck the arrogantly healthy flesh. Even that one glance at his face, seen from a distance through the lowing crowd, told her, now that she had repeated it to her mind's eye, that his cheeks were drawn and his skin was gray, No soap and water can ever clean away the grimy look of the sick at heart, and his stance was tired. She wanted them to go together to some hopelessly disreputable bar and to console one another, in the most maudlin fashion, over a lengthy succession of powerful drinks of whiskey, to compare their illnesses, to marry their invalid souls for these few hours of painful communion, and to babble with rapture that they were at last, for a little while, no longer alone." Only thus, as sick people, could they marry. In any other terms, it would be a mesalliance, doomed to divorce from the start, for rubes and intellectuals must stick to their own class. If only it could take place, this honeymoon of the cripples, this nuptial consummation of the abandoned, while drinking the delicious amber whiskey in a joint with a jukebox, a stout barkeep, and a handful of tottering derelicts, If it could take place, would it be possible to prevent him from marring it all by talking of secondary matters? That is, of art and neurosis, art and politics, art and science, art and religion? Could he lay off the fashions of the day and leave his learning in his private entrepot? Could he, that is, see the apple fall and not run madly to break the news to Newton and ask him what on earth it was all about? Could he, for her sake, For the sake of this pathetic rube all but weeping for her own pathos in the Metropolitan Museum, forget the whole dispute, and, believing his eyes for a change, admit that the earth was flat. It was useless for her now to try to see the paintings. She went, full of intentions, to the Van Eyck diptych and looked for a long time at the souls in hell, kept there by the implacable, impartial, and genderless angel who stood upon its closing mouth, She looked in renewed astonishment at Joe Davidson's pink, wrinkled, embalmed head of Jules Bosch, which sat a trinket on a fluted pedestal before a Flemish tapestry. But she was really conscious of nothing but her desire to leave the museum in the company of Alfred Eisenberg, her cousin Germain in the Territory of Despair. So she had to give up, two hours before the closing time, although she had meant to stay until the end, and she made her way to the central stairs, which she descended slowly, in disappointment, enviously observing the people who were going up, carrying collapsible canvas stools on which they would sit, losing themselves in their contemplation of the pictures. Salvador Dali passed her, going quickly down. At the telephone booths, she hesitated, so sharply lonely that she almost looked for her address book, and she did take out a coin, but she put it back, and pressed forlornly forward against the incoming tide. Suddenly, at the storm doors, she heard a whistle, and she turned sharply, knowing that it would be Eisenberg, as of course it was, and he wore an incongruous smile upon his long El Greco face. He took her hand and gravely asked her where she had been all this year and how she happened to be here, of all places, of all days. Emma replied distractedly, looking at his seedy clothes, his shaggy hair, the green cast of his white skin, his deep black eyes, in which all the feelings were disheveled, tattered, and held together only by the merest faith The change had to come. His hand was warm, and her own seemed to cling to it, and all their mutual necessity seemed centered here, in their clasped hands. And there was no doubt about it. He had heard of her collapse— and he saw in her face that she had heard of his. Their recognition of each other was instantaneous and absolute, for they cunningly saw that they were children, and that if they wished, they were free, for the rest of this winter Sunday, to play together, quite naked, quite innocent. "'What a day it is! What a place!' said Alfred Eisenberg. "'Can I buy you a drink, Emma? Have you time?' She did not accept at once. She guardedly inquired where they could go from here, for it was an unlikely neighborhood for the sort of place she wanted. But they were en rapport, and he, wanting to avoid the grown-ups as much as she, said they would go across to Lexington. He needed a drink after an afternoon like this, didn't she? Oh, Lord, yes, she did. And she did not question what he meant by an afternoon like this but said that she would be delighted to go, even though they would have to walk on eggs all the way from the museum to the place where the bottle was, the peace pipe on Lexington. Actually, there was nothing to fear. Even if they had heard catcalls or if someone had hooted at them, intellectual loves rube, they would have been impervious, for the heart carved in the bark of the apple tree would contain the names Emma and Alfred, and there were no perquisites to such a conjugation. To her own heart, which was shaped exactly like a valentine, there came a wing-like palpitation, a delicate exigency, and all the fragrance of all the flowery springtime love affairs that ever were seemed waiting for them in the whiskey bottle. To mingle their pain, their handshake had promised them, was to produce a separate entity, like a child that could shift for itself, and they scrambled hastily toward this profound and pastoral experience.
1: That was Eliza Foss reading Children Are Bored on Sunday, which was published in the Collected Stories of Gene Stafford from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux.
0: If you've been having a hard time customizing your workout to fit your new lifestyle these days, you are not alone. This New Yorker podcast is supported by Bulldog Online Yoga, the streaming platform that makes working out both fun and convenient. Build strength, relieve stress, and get your stretch on with easy-to-use apps for your computer, phone, and smart TV. With classes that range from 10 to 60 minutes, Bulldog sets all online yoga classes to custom Spotify playlists that'll have you smiling while you sweat it out. Head over to bulldogonline.com today and get 30 days free. That's bulldogonline.com to stream your first 30 days completely free.
1: The New Yorker Festival is back and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes Chris Rock is joining us Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple there's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Eric Holder and many more you can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com festival again that's newyorker.com festival see you there And once again, I'm joined by New Yorker staff writer Hilton Als. Hilton, in some ways, this story is very specifically dated to its era, to the late 40s, when Stafford was yes. was traveling in these intellectual circles in Manhattan. What is surprising to me is also how timeless it feels. You know, yes. now, 60 years later, you get smart young people moving to New York from more provincial places and feeling very removed from the intellectual life here, or very intimidated by it you know, the same things, the parties that are neither work nor play and the gossip that's stylized and creative. You came as far as (laughs) East east New York into Manhattan. I'm sure you had the same kind of sensations at the time, no?
2: Yes. I think that one of the reasons that I'm very drawn to her stories is that she talks about this feeling of difference almost always in her work, right through the last story she published in the New Yorker, which was called An Influx of Poets. And it was about her life with Lowell and various poets in the 40s. And she always had this feeling of outsiderness coming from Colorado and having made her way really through hard work. She was not a privileged child like her first... Was Lowell her first husband, Robert Lowell? Lowell was her first Yeah. Yeah. So she was always sort of, as she says in the story, attracted and repelled by this position of privilege, of, of knowingness. And I was very drawn to her work by the doubling the emotional split that happens between her characters generally being drawn to something and repelled simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So she wants access to sort of glittering Gotham and at the same time feels utterly defeated by the mores and the, the, those citizens' lack of understanding where she comes from. Her uncle's farm, for instance, that becomes mm-hmm. a recurring metaphor. Um, the collector stories won the Pulitzer Prize, I think, in 1970. And I think since then, she hasn't really been rediscovered.
1: Why do you think that is?
2: Um, I think that the stories are dated. I think that she's using some repertorial techniques that tie the pieces to the period. But I also think that she was not political in a self-conscious way, like Doris Lessing or Elizabeth Hardwick or any number of writers who were contemporaries of hers. She really was interested in the craft of fiction, which is not exposition. And I think because she didn't take a stand as a feminist... She was
1: actually quite anti-feminist. Yes. She she felt a woman needed to be dominated and and that that men should actually be quite brutal. Yes. Which is probably why she ended up with Lowell.
2: Yes, exactly. (laughs) And also drinking too much with A.J. Liebling and so on. But I think that her point of view was definitely part of her generational problems as a woman. Mm -hmm. But the peculiar tension of her stories are always about trying to break free of those Beliefs.
1: What's interesting in this story is the the person she reminds me most of is Salinger, actually. Yes, the, the I, sort of I was about to say the, the young mind confronting intellectual issues. Yes. and sort of urban sophistication that it's yes. not quite prepared for, and not not quite sure how yes. to feel about.
2: I really absolutely agree with you that um, while I was reading the story, "Perfect Day for a Banana Fish" came mm-hmm. to mind, or um, to Esme and Love and Squalor. I think Uncle mm-hmm. Wiggly in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Those feelings of a kind of living room despair, and ennui, a kind of drift through the life of the city, which always feels very energized and like a curtain that you couldn't really part, a sort of stage set
1: mm-hmm. that you
2: can't really be a character in.
1: What's interesting is that she has also has a similar combination of this very genuine emotional response that's really unclouded by intellectual issues, but then it rubs up against a very strong sense of irony, she said in an interview in 1952, irony, I feel, is a very high form of morality. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's where they both come together, those yes. two approaches. And I think you probably have that in Salinger as well. Yes, The story came out just a few months before her divorce went through with Lowell. They've oh, been wow. separated for a while. And, you know, Stafford suffered most of her life from alcoholism and depression. How much of her do you think is in Emma?
2: I think that this story and another New Yorker story called The Nemesis, about two characters who sort of see their reflection in each other, are the stories that are really that and the interior castle, which is about having her face restructured after a terrible
1: car accident accident oh, yeah, with Lowell. And Lowell and, drove into a wall. Yes.
2: Yeah. And so I think those three stories, almost all of them have to do with physical pain and drinking. Mm-hmm. And I was really astonished and very moved. To see while I was reading the story that it felt very much like her, if not an actual autobiography, then definitely a spiritual or emotional autobiography.
1: I, I read that Alfred Eisenberg was based on Delmore Schwartz, the poet. Oh, really? And that, that Schwartz was not very happy when the story came out. <laughs> <laughs> that he he accused her of selling out to get into The New Yorker and so on.
2: Oh, wow, I didn't know yeah. that. Did she have an affair with him?
1: No, they were good friends. Yeah. But it's interesting to see how much is actually taken from her life.
2: Yes. Oh, that's very interesting. I didn't know that at all. So you learn something new every day. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> what What do you think triggered Emma's withdrawal?
2: You I mean her collapse. Her collapse she and it. her... her... Um, I think the strain of trying to fit in, the strain of striving toward a a certain kind of society that really did see her as a Rue, Mm -hmm. that no matter how sophisticated and ironic she was, which we can see in the story, there was something entirely wholesome about her values. And the sort of strange drift that she's experiencing in the museum there is just a metaphor for her outsiderness in the cultural life of New York as a whole. She can't tell them that she likes the wholesomeness of the pictures. So to not really be allowed your own language is not only stultifying, it can make you feel crazy. And I think that that's what happens to her. She's not allowed to speak her particular kind of truth. Mm-hmm. And as we know, drinking is one way that you get to do it, or you allow yourself to do it, or you suppress it further. So one of the sad mm-hmm. things about this story is, it's sort of like boy meets girl, but it's terrible because they're still going to be messed up and even worse mm-hmm. than before.
1: The story is both incredibly depressing and quite funny. Yes, you know, I just I I love this image of them basically skipping off hand in hand yes. towards this pastoral experience of you know drinking themselves sick
2: in order to tolerate intimacy so mm-hmm. sad
1: <laughs> <laughs> and funny <laughs> yes it is I mean
2: they're gonna have fun I mean everybody has fun getting drunk but then mm-hmm. there's always the next day
1: thank you so much thank you Hilton Alves is a staff writer and theater critic for The New Yorker To listen to previous fiction podcasts, as well as other free New Yorker podcasts, go to the iTunes store and type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.